Oh, Father God, we come before you. Father, grateful for the opportunity to give, grateful for the opportunity to give back. You have been so good. You have been so kind. Father, we're not worthy of what you have given to us, yet in your mercy and your kindness, you have been so just giving and rich towards us. Father, we pray that the funds that we collect will go to your glory. They will spread your name. And Father, that we will see a church planting movement spread across this county and maybe even beyond. Father, now we just ask you, we beg of you, we implore you, Father, would you, by your Spirit, open up this text that we're about to study together. Father, may we ring goodness, may we ring truth, may we ring your mercy and your grace from this text like a waffle filled with syrup. Oh, Father, please open our hearts. Let us hear your voice now, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people say... Amen, amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me. We're going to continue on in Acts 13. And today, in particular, we're going to be in verses 24 through 29. Acts 13, 24 through 29. If you have a smartphone, iPad, follow along on there. Here's what we're doing. Here's where we're going. We're at a part of Acts where we actually get Paul's first recorded sermon. Like, Maybe the greatest preacher after Jesus of all time. We get to study what his preaching was like. That's kind of cool, right? Well, here's what we're doing because it's a long sermon. Paul was not known for being concise. He was a rather long-winded man. Anybody know a preacher like that? Yes, guilty. What we're going to do is we're going to chop this up into three parts. What did we do last week? Last week, we looked at the first part of the sermon where we looked at the stories from the Old Testament as Paul walked us through the history of Israel, and we said, that's us. That's our story. Like them, they have a story of sin. They have a story of shame, but it's a story covered by grace. And we need to see our story as stories fundamentally of sin and the grace that covers us. That's what we did last week. What are we doing next week in part three? We're going to look at the story of Jesus's resurrection and see how that has bearing on us, how that helps us as God sent one, his sent missionaries. And we'll get there next week. What are we doing today? Here's what we're doing today. We're going to look at the story of Jesus' death and ask, what do we learn from Jesus' death? What happens in my life? How does my life change? How is my life better? Because my story is defined, wrapped up in, and found in Jesus' story of death. That's where we're going. That's what we're doing. And there's three ways we're going to see that Jesus' story of death makes a difference in your life. Here's the three places we're going this morning. All right, some of y'all are used to me reading the text. I'm just going to read as we go. Here's the three things that we learned this morning. We learned this. When my story is defined by Jesus' death, I have all the significance that I will ever need. I have all the significance that I will ever need. The second thing that we're going to learn is this. When my story is defined by Jesus' death, I live aware of my unworthiness. I live aware of my unworthiness. The third and final thing that we're going to see is this. When my story is defined by Jesus' death, I have all the blessing and all the freedom I will ever need. I have all the significance I need. Yes, I'm aware of my unworthiness, but I have all the freedom and all the blessing that I will ever need. Sound good, Grace? 
Let's break this apart. Let's, let's hop in. If you're here and you're new, we like crowd participation. You can say amen, all right? There we go. Good? Yeah, you said amen. There you go. Good crowd. Good crowd. All right. The first thing we see is this. When my story is defined and anchored in Jesus's death, I have all the significance that I will ever need. Let's begin our journey in verse 24. Go with me there. Go to verse 24. Before his, his being Jesus, before his coming, John the Baptist had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Okay, what does that mean? What does that mean? Here's what it means. John the Baptist's job description, his purpose, was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. His job was to prepare the way for Jesus. Now, this led to two things. The first thing it led to was a very unusual life. Anybody heard the story of John the Baptist? Imagine if that's your job description, going to Hebrew parties and being like, hi, I'm John. Here's the bowl of locusts. Hey, have you heard about Jesus? Can we talk about your sin? Great way to make friends, right? <laughs> What's the second way that this made John's life rather unusual? Well, John was more than likely called to a life of singleness and childlessness. Oh, man. For most of us here, can we even grasp that? Like, I've learned that, that this area is much like the South that I grew up in where family runs deep. In fact, can I say this? Sometimes family can be a source of idolatry. Idols can flow from family when we're too defined by it. But John... John never knew the sweet side of family. He never saw a spouse's smile. Can we go there? Can we be real? John never knew the deeper, more intimate connection that a husband and wife can have and just that closeness and that sweetness and that tenderness. John never had the joy of a tickle fight with one of his own children or one of his grandchildren right? What's the third way that John's life was unusual? John was called to be thrown in prison and beheaded. Quick show of hands. How many of you, if God lets you write your life script, how many of you would sign up for that? Right? So John's life was unusual, but here's the second thing about John's life. The second thing that we learn about John's life is John lived a life of great significance. John's life had value. It had worth. It had dignity. It had meaning. John didn't have to ask when he woke up in the morning, what am I going to do today? John didn't need a reason to get out of the bed. John's life was full of significance. In fact, no less than Jesus Christ puts his stamp on John's life. Look at what Jesus says about John in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. He basically calls John the greatest man who's ever lived. How many of you would like for Jesus to say that about you? Right? How many of you would like for your spouse or your kids to say that about you, right? John's life was a life chock full of significance. Life in Christ is a life chock full of significance. And friends, we all crave significance. Let me show you what one author, a man named R.C. Sproul, has to say about significance. He says this. He says, we want our lives to count. We yearn to believe in some way we are important. This inner drive is as intense as our need for water and oxygen. Resonate? Let me tell you the story of Jane. Let me tell you the story of Jane. 
Jane participated in a survey on job satisfaction at Colorado State University. They were so struck by her story that one of the researchers just had to tell it. Here's what he tells. Jane was a cleaning lady. She hopped around from cleaning job to cleaning job just trying to make ends meet. As you can imagine, this is a very difficult life. It's not super desirable. Well, after being a caretaker for one of her family members who winds up dying, Jane says, I got to get a stable job. I got to get a stable job. Why? Because if I don't get a stable job, that's going to be me. Jane gets a job as a custodian at Colorado State University. And during her initial training, her frontline supervisor gives her something that changes her life forever. The man pulled out the dictionary, opened it up to the definition of custodian. He said, you're a custodian here. Here's how the dictionary defines your job. A custodian is somebody who is responsible for or looks after someone, a group, or something. This was a game changer for Jane. How? All of her life, Jane had been told being a cleaning lady is dirty. It's unskilled labor. It's not worthy. But Jane realized her job had purpose. She says, as I take care of the buildings, I'm taking care of the administration. I'm taking care of the faculty as they do top-notch research. I'm taking care of the students. I'm taking care of the staff. For the first time in her life, her sense of work had a sense of worth. This fueled her. This drove her. And she stayed in that job for over 18 years and might even be continuing into it today. We all want a life where regardless of what we do, we connect with a sense of worth that our work has a sense of significance. How do we get that? How do we get that? Let's go back to John. Go with me to verse 25. Let's look at John the Baptist. And as John was finishing his course, stop right there. Look at that word course. Let's hang on that word course. When you translate that word from the Greek, you can also translate that not just as course, but task, obligation. Here's my favorite one. Mission. Mission. John knew his sense of mission. He knew that he was sent. He knew that he was here to accomplish a purpose. And what was that purpose? What was that point? What was that mission? Look at verse 25 again. His job is to say, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me, one is coming. One is coming. What was the point of John's life? It was to say, don't look at me. I'm not grand. Look at him. Look at Jesus. When we read John's gospel, chapter 3, verse 30, we see a very powerful, very profound statement of John the Baptist. It was actually a popular Christian bumper sticker several years ago. What is it? He must increase. I must decrease. Friends, there is a wonderful sense of significance when life is about Jesus. But here's the catch. This is actually really cool. I think you're going to like this. You get something better than John. Why? How can I say That's pretty bold. John, greatest man ever lived. What are you doing, Rogers? What are you doing, PJ? Right? John's job was to announce the coming, the arrival of Jesus. Jesus has come, and why did he come? Why did he come? Make some water wine? No, he came to die. What do you and I get to live for? Jesus' death. 
When you live to point to Jesus' death, it is a game changer. It changes your life. How? How? Let me illustrate it. I would love to walk you through work. I would love to walk you through parenting. I would love to walk you through civic responsibility, all the different facets of life. Can we hone in on marriage? Can we ask how, when I live for Jesus' death, does that make my marriage better? How? Husbands? You are called to lay down your life for your wife. You are called to serve her with every fiber of your being. You are called to live to make her life better. When you live for Jesus' death, you live to give away. You live to sacrifice. You live to die to self. You live to deny yourself. And when your wife sees that, ladies, get my back here. I'm helping you now. Ladies, get my back. When your husband does this, when you can trust, you have a rock rib, I know him. He lives for my embitterment. He lives for the family's embitterment. Doesn't it make it easy for you to do what the Bible says, which is to respect and to submit? Don't you do that from a place of respect and seeing his life in Christ? Men, do you see that? When you're Jesus, when you live out his death, it moves your wife. Ladies, ladies, what are you called to do? Well, the biblical verbs, they're kind, some people don't like them, but here at Grace, we're equal opportunity when it comes to offending people. The verbs are respect, submit, be subject to. When you live for Jesus' death, when you give away, when you live self-sacrificially as a wife, as an aspiring wife, right? You move your husband. You move your husband. When he sees your life live for Jesus, he sees you sacrificing, what's his response? Whoa, I came for the looks, but I'm staying for the Jesus and you appreciate her, you treasure her, you value her, and what does that do in your man? Oh, it makes you get creative. You, you go, I can never run out of ideas to treasure her, to cherish her, to show her how valuable she is. It makes you over-the-top creative, and when men, when we're over-the-top creative and loving our wives, the lubby-dubby factor jackrabbits up, doesn't it? Right? Doesn't that make marriage sweeter? Doesn't it make you like teenagers all over again? But here's the thing. It doesn't just do that for you and in your life. It makes your marriage evangelistic. What is the purpose of marriage? To show Christ and the church. When other people see Jesus and his death making a difference in your marriage, other people go, how do you do that? I want that. Right? Wouldn't that solve a lot of society's ills? Right? If our marriage is shown forth the beauty of Jesus' death, oh, what a wonderful thing. What a wonderful way to live. Oh, what a wonderful way to have an impact. What do we learn from John's life? We learn this. When your life is defined by Jesus' death, you have all the significance you will ever need. But how do we rest in that? How do we trust in that? It's a process. It's a journey. We've got to look at one other aspect of John's life to begin on that journey, and it's this. John knew that he was unworthy. And that's our second point. When your life is defined by Jesus' death, you are aware of your unworthiness. Look at verse 25. Where do we leave it off? Where do we leave it off in verse 25? 
John says this, after me one is coming, and look at this phrase, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Friends, in John's day, the slaves and the servants would take their master when he got home and they would undo his shoes. John says, I'm not worthy of even that. Now that creates a problem. <laughs> creates a problem, does Like if John is the greatest man who ever lived, you and I are like somewhere in here, right? Like my mother-in-law here, me here, sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass you, but we have a problem. We're all unworthy. We're all unworthy. In fact, Paul double clicks on this. But before we go to verse 26, let me give a massive caveat here. This isn't National Offend Everybody Day. This isn't National Pick on Everybody Day. That's not the point of talking about our unworthiness. No, the point here is to have a sober assessment of our lives. Because when we do, you're going to see at the end of this point, there's something really beautiful that happens. Something really cool that you're going to love, you're going to treasure. But let's go to verse 26, because Paul also double-clicks on this notion of unworthiness. You see, in verse 26, Paul basically says, here's two crowds of people, they both need to be saved. Look at verse 26, go with me there. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. All right, who are the sons of the family of Abraham? It's Israelites. Yeah, very good. That's the Israelites. It's the churchy crowd. It's the people raised in the church. It's the people who know all the unwritten rules, who speak the lingo, who got some kind of award at VBS, Awanas, Cadets, Gyms, Backyard Bible Study, Youth for Christ, whatever it is that you were in. What's the second crowd? What's the second crowd? It's those among you who fear God. Who's that crowd? Well, in John's day, as they started synagogues all around the Mediterranean coastline, people in those local areas would get fed up with the local religion, Greek religion, Roman religion. It would not satisfy. So they would give the God of the Bible a chance. They're called God-fearers, right? They are seekers giving the God of the Bible a chance. Who are these people today? People born outside of the church. These are the outsiders, the one who comes in, and it's a little awkward. I don't know what to dress. I don't know what to wear. What do they mean by this word justification? I've never heard that before. Both camps, verse 26, what does Paul say? Let's go next slide. Both camps need the message of salvation. Both camps are fundamentally unworthy. If both camps are unworthy, let me do my best to convince you, whether you were raised in the church, whether you're an outsider, that we're all unworthy. I'm going to start with my camp. I'm going to pick on myself. I'm going to start with the churchy camp. Yes, I was born in the church, raised in the church. Let's look at this. Let's explore this. Men, you are reading Everyone's a Theologian by R.C. Sproul. Is it a good book? It's a good book. Yeah, it's a great book. Let me ask you this. In your zeal to study, is your zeal driven more by the need to be right? Is our study of theology turning you into a hard-hearted person who has no mercy towards people who haven't studied this, and you're living to dismantle and take apart what other people believe? Are you more excited to become a theological watchdog, or are you more excited about Jesus? Are you more excited to grow in Christ's ways, to learn of his great love for you and all that doctrine that's just there to show you who he is and what he's done for you? 
One is the path of humility and growth. The other is the path of pride. Ladies, not to leave you out of it. Women's Bible study, what have we been learning? The book of Philippians, the book of 1 Peter. What is shot through both of those letters? What is a mega theme? It's this. Surrender your rights as Jesus Christ did. Surrender your preferences and live a path of true humility by living to embedder another person's life and see that their joys, their preferences are met before your own. That's the path of humility. Self-centeredness is the path of pride. Ladies, I love you. How are you doing at that? How are you doing at that? Male or female, we all struggle, and this is me. This is me. Remember, this is beat up on PJ time as well, okay? Let's go there. How are you doing with this dynamic? Are you more aware of where you need to grow in Christ? Or are you more aware of where another person needs to grow in Christ? Are you more aware of where you need to grow in Christ and where you have some sinful tendencies? Or are you more aware of where the outside culture needs to repent and change? One is the path of humility and growth in Christ. One is the path of pride. What does the Bible have to say about pride? Friends, when we raise in the church, there is this great temptation. There is this great temptation to think, I'm not really that bad. But here's what happens. Here's what happens. We start to rest on, we start to rely on our church attendance. We start to rely on our tithe record, our clean language, our good reputation, our mastery of the Bible, our mastery of doctrine or a catechism. We start to think we're okay because those things are present in our life. Relying on that, resting on that, please let me make clear, is foul smelling before the Lord. It makes you unworthy. Why? Because you're not really relying on Jesus. Oh, friends, we must be careful of this. When we start to put hope and faith and rest in our works, we become like the people in verse 27. Let's look at them. Let's look at verse 27. It says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, Pharisees, chief priests, scribes, what did they do? They did not recognize Jesus nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. They misread the Bible. They looked to the Bible as a set of laws that you follow, and they missed Jesus, and they missed their need for him. They thought they were worthy. They were not aware of their own unworthiness. And what did the churchy people of John's day do? They're the ones that called the loudest for Jesus' crucifixion. Friends, being raised in the church, we can go that way. Please be careful of that. Okay, now what about people outside the church? Everybody can breathe, relax, rest easy, get them, Pastor John, right? What about people raised outside of the church? If you're an outsider, if you're here, and you're really honestly seeking the God of the Bible, can I ask you this? Can you really say you're living for God's glory? Can you? All of your life devoted to living for God's glory. You're seeking God. I, I love that. That's wonderful. Let me encourage you to do it. How earnestly are you doing it? Are you willing to let your search for God take you to uncomfortable places? Like, do you really want God no matter the cost? Like, like even if it means that the Bible is true, 
if I may say it, hell is hot. Men are really men and men only. Women are really women and women only. And Christ is our only hope. If you had to believe that, would you still say, even if I have to believe that, I'm chasing after this God? Or do you put conditions on your search for God? Do you tell God, I'll believe in you if I can marry who I want to marry, love who I want to love? Do you tell God, I'll believe in you if you don't make me change on A, B, and C? Can I ask, do you see what you're doing? By putting conditions on God, you're trying to create God. You're trying to fashion God. You're trying to tailor God. You are making God in your own image rather than letting him have made you in his image. And if you pull back the nut enough on that, if you peel back the onion layers, what do you find? You find that when you're making God, can I say it? You're playing God. How would you do before God's throne if he laid out to you that that's what you're really doing? Would you feel worthy? Would you feel worthy? Now, again, the point here is not to navel gaze and, oh, I'm so bad, I'm so evil, I'm never coming back to grace. No, 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 we must have a sober-minded assessment of ourselves because when we do, when we're honest and we own that we're unworthy, here's the beauty, here's the good part. Let me tell you the good part. There's three good parts. There's more, but I'm only gonna give you three. When you live with an awareness, just an awareness, all right? Not a downtroddenness, but when you live with the awareness of your own worthiness the way John the Baptist did, the way Paul did, the first thing that happens in your life is this. You don't feel a need to get into fights with non-Christians. You're kinder. You're more winsome. They say things that, okay, could kind of get you riled up. Our first comment, our first review on Facebook as a church plant was this. It's from somebody who wrote, theists, people who believe in God, all suffer from mental illness, science is the cure. Right? Like, like the snarky, witty guy in me wants to say, did your mom and dad believe in God? Did your grandparents believe in God? Did your great-grandparents believe in God? Were they mentally ill? You know it's hereditary, right? Like, I, I want to do that. It just rises up within me, right? When, when I meet somebody who wants to bash me because I believe men are men, women are women, God designed it that way, that's the way it is, they say, well, don't I get to identify myself the way I want to, the way I feel comfortable? I want to say, okay, let's use your logic. Let's talk about Jesus. He identified himself as the Son of God. He identified himself as the only son of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, your only hope for heaven. Will you let Jesus identify himself the way he feels comfortable identifying himself? Like, I want to get into that argument, right? But when you hear and see and own your own unworthiness, you're kinder, you're more winsome. You go, okay, let me consider your point of view. Can we talk about this? What's the second way that an awareness of our unworthiness is good? Have you ever had a friend, a loved one, a family member, a coworker who is a Christian fail, fall, or find themselves in folly? When they're broken over it and they come to you for help, how much more compassionate are you? When your unworthiness intersects with their unworthiness, rather than being judgmental in this moment, and yes, there is a time and a place for a rebuke. I got it. The Bible says it. Yes, we believe in it. But generally speaking, when you're aware of your unworthiness 
and someone comes and says, I'm unworthy and I'm experiencing that, you're going to speak to them with mercy and grace to build them up, to restore them. What's the third way that an awareness of our unworthiness is good? The third way is this. It drives discipleship in your life. I've got a diagram for you. How does it drive discipleship? How does it make discipleship deeper? Can you all see the image? All right, this is your life. Just pretend it's your life, right? 2D. You come to faith, you convert, and two things happen. Two arrows happen. The first arrow is you, for the rest of your life, grow in your awareness of God's goodness, God's holiness, God's grace, and God's mercy. As time goes on, that arrow goes up. But what else happens as time goes on? Your awareness of your unworthiness, your awareness of your sin increases. Why is this good? Go next slide. The cross that bridges us in our unworthiness to a holy, gracious, kind God gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Do you see how it makes us appreciate and love Jesus for his death that much more? Do you see the beauty in that? Do you see the good in that? It drives us to the cross. So friends, we find that we're all unworthy. We need Jesus' death. Well, what's our third point? Let's unpack Jesus' death. Let's see that when our story is defined by Jesus' death, I have all the freedom and I have all the blessing I'll ever need. You know, the rest of our text is focused on Jesus' death. Look at verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed right? There's death. Look at verse 29. When they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Friends, this is about Jesus's death, but it's not just enough to say that Jesus died. Jesus, what we need to say is this, Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you, and that death brings you freedom, and that death brings you blessing. Let's break both of those down. How does Jesus' death bring you freedom, and what does that freedom look like? Go back to your own unworthiness for a minute. When we stand before God in our unworthiness, we stand condemned. We stand condemned. We'll look at verse 27. Jesus was condemned. Yet look at verse 28. Was Jesus guilty? No. He was sinless. He was innocent. He was not worthy of death. What's going on here, and what does this have to do with my freedom and my unworthiness and my condemnation? It's this. Jesus was condemned in your place. He took your guilt at the cross and received it and put it onto himself. He paid the penalty. He took the rap for you. And if you're no longer condemned, if you're no longer guilty, if you are innocent, you are now free. How are you free? You're free from guilt. You're free from the condemnation of other people. You're free from your own self-condemnation. More importantly than that, you're free from God's condemnation. You are free from feeling dirty. You are free to serve the living God. You are free to see that serving Him, walking in His ways, is not just some rote, dry duty, but it's a delight. As I'm free to follow Him, I'm free to see how good it is. I'm free from what the world says. I'm free from the world defining me. No, I'm defined now by who He says I am, and that liberates us to be used by Him and to live for His glory. Amen? 
How is there blessing? How is there blessing? How does Jesus' death bring blessing? Go back to our unworthiness. Go back to our unworthiness. When you stand before God and you're aware that you are unworthy, aren't you going to feel tainted? Aren't you going to feel like damaged goods, stricken, separate, other from God, like I need to hide from God? You would feel cursed. You would feel cursed. Well, here's the thing. Good news. Jesus' death takes the curse off of us. How can I say that? Look at verse 29. Do you see where Jesus hung on a tree, where he was crucified? In the Old Testament, it was clear as a bell. If you hung on a tree, you were considered cursed by God. In fact, Paul's going to write a letter back to this very same crowd. I didn't tell you last week, this is the region of Galatia. Does that sound like a book of the Bible you've read? The letter to the Galatians. Paul's going to write back to them. He's going to remind them. He's going to unpack this Jesus hanging on a tree in Galatians 3, 13 and 14 when he says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. What? Say it. For us, yes, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Jesus, when the curse is gone, what's left? The blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham. What does it mean to be blessed? It means you live with God smiling at you. His face shines upon you. You feel close to him. You are aware of his presence because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Oh, friends, This is such wonderful news. He watches over you. He keeps you. He protects you. He provides for you. Even in your time of trial, he's there with you. Your state of blessing has not been removed. No matter who you are, no matter how unworthy you are, no matter what you've done, you are free. You are blessed. Let's close with this. I don't just want to explain it. I want to illustrate it. I want to tell you the story of a a man who I knew in high school. His name is Eric Smallridge. Friends, Eric, <laughs> Eric was a funny guy. He was a popular guy. He was an athlete. I played goalie. He played goalie. He was two years ahead of me, and I wish that I could have been half the goalie that Eric Smallridge was. Well, on May 11, 2002, Eric was out at a bar drinking with his friends, and he thought he had his drinking under control. Like so many people, when they're drunk or inebriated, he did not realize how out of control he was. He made the unfortunate decision to drive home drunk, clipped a car, and killed two young ladies. One was named Megan Napier, the other was her best friend Lisa. To this day, Eric can tell you, I remember standing off to the side of the road as the cops got the white sheet out of their patrol car and put it over the windshield with the two bodies still inside. It haunted Eric for a long time. He says, excuse me, May 2nd, the night that this happened, was also the night before Mother's Day. What a terrible thing to have happen, and what terrible timing for Renee Napier to learn that her daughter, Megan, had been killed by a drunk driver. But friends, this is not the end of Eric's story, no. This is not the end of Eric's story. In Christ, this is never the ending of the story. No, here's Eric's story. Eric was riddled with guilt and grief, and as a result, he joined a Bible study in prison. 
He came to faith in Jesus Christ. He gave his life to Jesus despite his unworthiness, and he found the freedom of forgiveness. Eric says this, I didn't glorify God with my life. I hated myself after the accident and contemplated suicide. I never thought now I would be a soldier for Christ. This is also not the end of the story for Renee. The trial took place in 2003, and because of her faith, she found the freedom to say at the trial, Eric, I forgive you. A year later, she started the Megan Napier Foundation where she goes around into schools making presentations on DUIs, telling her daughter's story. It's actually kind of started to take off. Two years later, 2006, what does Renee do? She goes to the judge and says, Judge, would you pardon Eric? And the judge cut Eric's sentence in half, the man who killed her daughter. Four years later, as Eric was nearing the end of his sentence, what happened? Renee went back to the judge and said, we've developed a pretty strong relationship. Would you please allow him to come with me and tell his story as I do my presentations in schools? The judge said yes. Eric showed up in his orange jumpsuit, his handcuffs, eager to tell the story of Jesus. Oh, friends. To this day, they travel around. They have been in every one of the 67 counties in Florida telling the public schools, the private schools. They've been featured on military bases, and now they're going national. At the end of the presentation, after each person tells their story with Megan's car in between them crushed and smashed, they hug. They consider each other to be family now. Renee says, I love Eric like a son, and I know that he loves me. What did we say about Jesus' death? And when your story is defined by Jesus' death, we said you will have all the significance you will ever need. Is that true in Eric's story? Yes, Eric is significant to God the Father because of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, but Eric is living a life of significance, making an impact as his story is being redeemed by God Almighty. We said that you will live aware of your unworthiness. Is Eric living aware of his unworthiness? Yeah, I think that's kind of obvious, but here's the thing. As with Paul, as with John the Baptist, it does not hold him back. We said that you will live with all the freedom and all the blessing you will ever need. Is that true of Eric's life? Yeah, he has freedom from all kinds of guilt, all kinds of condemnation, and all kinds of shame, and he lives with the blessing of knowing Jesus. Brothers and sisters, friends, if our God will do this for Eric, who took an innocent young lady, two innocent young ladies' lives, can he do that for you? Yes. Can he do that for your son, your daughter, your wayward family member? Can he do it for your friend? Can he do it for your coworker? Can he do it for your neighbor? Oh, he can. If you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus, come and bring your unworthiness. Lay it on the altar and receive a life of significance. Receive a life of freedom. Receive a life of blessing. And for all of us, go now and tell the story of your Savior's death. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we come before you. Father, you alone are holy, perfect, righteous, and good. But Father... You're not just a cosmic judge who lives to zap us. You're a good father who sent his son to die in our place, to take on our unworthiness and to nail it to the cross so that it is gone from us as far as the east is from the west. 
Father, let us go live for you now, Father, looking to you and not the world for our significance, looking to you and not other people for our freedom, looking to you and not unsatisfying idols for our source of blessing. Oh, Father, be with us now as we sing and as we go out to serve you. We love you. We praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen. Amen.